Welcome to Depollution, the new podcast from SalvageWire. In this podcast, we will be interviewing interesting and inspiring leaders to discuss issues that are facing the vehicle salvage and vehicle recycling industries, along with other leaders who can challenge and inspire the whole industry. In this podcast, we welcome Adam Murray, Motor Technical Manager for Aviva. So, Adam, welcome to the Depollution podcast. Thank you for uh, the time that you're giving for this. Can you give me a little bit of introduction on your career, uh, who you've worked for, your roles, and your current role uh, and the business that you're in? So, I started as a 15-year-old, initially repairing motor vehicles for a Ford dealership in Glenrothes. that led me to a journey of uh, completing my apprenticeship and going on to lead teams of people in repair centres prior to joining a company called Commercial Union in 1990 as an insurance assessor. I progressed to regional engineer manager, then acquisitions and mergers came along and I found myself in 1999 working in Bristol having been in the role a very short time, six months, and having moved my family from Scotland six weeks previously, uh, I had to apply for my job. This was a serious wake-up call, Mm -hmm. but I successfully secured the role, and this single change in circumstances made me more aware and conscious of what was required in a good leader to be committed to be yourself. I led that team for about seven years, maintained the change programme, great results through the team, where four of my team became senior managers. I was then promoted by Aviva into my current role, uh, which I've held for the past 13 years as motor technical manager. This role has a wide scope, involves internal and external responsibilities. Internally, it centres around keeping Aviva and our customers safe in the here and now, developing programmes that systematically embed best practice measure compliance and provide feedback on performance to satisfy regulatory compliance. Externally, the role is centred around identifying challenges, opportunities and development programmes that make a difference based on the issues of the time. Example of where it identifies that repair sector did not have a consistent measures or purpose to deliver safe compliant repairs to customers' vehicles. I assisted to develop the then Pass 125 programme, which transformed the sector, resulting in improvement in compliance standards, reducing risk, delivering safe and compliant repairs for our customers. End. Fantastic. (laughs) And and over over that time, you've seen a massive change in vehicle technology, Um, and this, you know, particularly in the last 10 years, and that rate of change isn't slowing down. How much of a difference has this made to vehicle repair and and how do you see the repair industry adapting and changing in the future to meet forthcoming challenges and the changes that are on the on the horizon so that's a great question and in truth there is not one stock answer and there are still many challenges to address in the vehicle sector Mm. which is becoming more diverse hgv psv lcv and cars are all different and present different requirements yeah on the basis of the current climate with coronavirus and Brexit coinciding, uh, we have no idea what will happen when we come out of this lockdown and actually what that landscape will look like. Mm. I suspect the economics of the landscape will 
result in some uh, smaller businesses going out of business. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe mergers and acquisitions will actually start to come to the fore again, mm -hmm. and we'll see a change in market again. Turning it to the technological uh, challenges that come out of vehicle manufacturers. When vehicles are manufactured, the person who designs the vehicle has no concept of what it means for repair. Generally, they don't consider it. They're making a safe, compliant vehicle that meets regulation and that allows them to produce it at the best cost possible. When it comes to repair, often the sector find that when they get a new vehicle that's recently been manufactured and released to the market, that repair methods don't exist. Parts for repair don't exist, and knowledge of how to repair the vehicle doesn't exist. And that presents many, many challenges that we face daily. And lots of these vehicles are actually not repaired at the first offering that we tend to explore how we could repair them through the mediums of the Thatcham.org uh, facility down in Berkshire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, I do not see the, the challenges uh, becoming standard, it's going to be a diverse set of challenges that have to be overcome, hence why insurers employ people like myself. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, PASS 125, which has now become BS 10125, uh, and that was a significant advancement for the collision repair sector. Can you summarise that standard for, for the listeners and explain why the standard was put into place? Okay, so the aims delivered through BS 10125, that's what they call it, mm -hmm. are to ensure that repairs, repairers whom are accredited to the standard have a business that operates, delivers consistent standards of repair in the four pillars, man, machine, methods and materials. Each pillar has a specific set of requirements that must be embedded within the working practices of the operation these are independently audited by a UCAS accredited bodies. The standard is owned and managed by British Standards Institute, a world-renowned standard setting agency who develop, publish and manage standard setting across many sectors mm -hmm. and products globally. So the standard was put in place to deliver improvements in consistent application of business practices, adoption of repair methods, ensuring staff were adequately qualified to repair vehicles consistently. Machinery is calibrated in line with manufacturer specifications and materials used were within the best before range date, often ignored by the industry. Mm -hmm. Before the introduction of PAS and subsequently BS10125, anyone could repair vehicles without any evidence that the staff were properly trained or supervised. Materials could be out of date, machinery was not calibrated, and few were following research repair method to repair vehicles. My view was that the development of the vehicle design that employed different materials, some of which could not be joined or repaired, it was a disaster waiting mm -hmm. to happen and that we were very fortunate that many advocates from across the repair and insurance sectors felt these shortfalls needed addressed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if we didn't have the standard the, that we have today, I believe that we would face many, many more vehicles being total lost because we didn't know how to repair them. That would end in a disaster because people buying these vehicles would still elect to repair them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> now. We know, and you know, we've we've known for a long, long time that 
pretty much the whole of the UK collision repair industry is is using brand new parts. Um, yep. but, there's, but there's been a drive over a number of years to put uh, recycled or reclaimed parts into, <coughs> into vehicle repair. How? What do we have to do to achieve much greater acceptance and use of reclaimed parts in, in vehicle repair? Okay. My personal view is to legitimise the use of reclaimed parts. And the first step to doing this is to publish a standard that sets the framework of requirements for the parts mm -hmm. to be measured against. This work is underway and I'm already seeing a change in acceptance within the industry and what needs further testing is the consumer acceptance of the use of these parts. Yeah. That is where the difficulty may arise. Insurers are regulated businesses and must maintain compliance to FCA and other requirements mm -hmm. under regulation. One of the requirements is not to put the financial gain in the way of delivering customer service. That's a hurdle that some insurers will find very difficult to overcome. Right. My may generate some follow-up questions around the parts standard. You can imagine that some insurers uh, would see this as a cash cow to deliver a cost saving. Mm -hmm. My my expectation is using reclaimed parts uh, allows us to share the benefit of the cost model with the partners involved. That means mm -hmm. the reclaimed facility, the the supplier, that's the repairer, and perhaps the insurer might get some revenue back as a result of mm -hmm. using reclaimed parts. Mm -hmm. But the industry needs to be completely transparent with the customer, and this will take time to deliver consistent application. Yeah. Evidence-based feedback to underpin the use of reclaimed parts. It operates in many countries across the globe, why should it not work in the UK? Mm -hmm. If the industry adopts a consistent approach and uses the reclaimed parts and no one abuses the application, we have the foundation to build to make this programme accepted and universally uh, beneficial. Right. Okay. That's good. And you've said, and I know you've said it, said it before, that um, reclaimed parts cannot be safety-related parts. Can you explain in more detail why, why you've taken this stance? Yeah. So... Aviva are an insurer who consider carefully how we mitigate and manage risk through all our programmes to ensure that we treat customers fairly and deliver on our purpose with you today for a better tomorrow. Mm -hmm. One of the simplest ways to mitigate risk is to identify the most common areas of risk within a process. Safety critical performance components present the largest risk in the repair of motor vehicles. Yeah. If the component cannot be tested to deliver a proven standard of performance, it cannot be reused in the repair of customers' vehicles. Right. The risk is too high. If these components were remanufactured or a testing mechanism could be developed that provided certainty of performance, Aviva may adopt a different approach to these components. Mm -hmm. In the absence of this certainty of outcome, we simply cannot put our customers at risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if we do bring and, and we do achieve that uh, goal of bringing more reclaimed parts into the vehicle repair, um, then we're going to have to re-educate re the vehicle repair sector. Is there a best way of managing this? Uh, and how can the vehicle recyclers and the insurance in industry work together to make this happen? So bringing more reclaimed parts into the vehicle repair industry will require some re-education. There's no question about that. The programme is no different to many previous change programmes. One advantage to this programme is the fact that there are already established professionals on both sides of the sector to work with. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. i.e. professional dismantlers who have operated successful businesses for many years, uh, repairers and insurers who are expert at development programmes, I can assure you. Yeah. My, my simple way of introducing change is to work collaboratively and to design guidelines that set out the principles of what can and cannot be used. Mm -hmm. Introduce measures that are fair, realistic and that deliver the correct outcomes consistently. Yeah. And continually review the programme to refine and develop the best operating models. Do you expect that there's going to be resistance from the repair industry on this? No because they're already using reclaim parts and have been for years under undercover. So yeah. uh, for years and years, uh, I've run audit programs within Aviva where we've identified repairers using reclaim parts, not always on our vehicle repairs, mm -hmm. primarily using reclaim parts. Mm. We, we don't actually get involved in issues that are created by other partners. Uh, we would allow repairers to have freedom of choice if they adopt to do that. But our understanding is that they're repairing cars for other people today using reclaimed parts, and that shouldn't inhibit our thoughts mm -hmm. in the future. We embrace that and we should build upon it. Yeah. yeah. We will come back to our conversation with Adam in a moment. Salvage Insight is a new programme from SalvageWire. We are creating a range of intensive management bootcamp options for business owners and managers who want to measure current value creation, create compelling customer experiences, market, promote and sell more effectively, improve profitability, manage smarter at every level of the business, determine the most effective, lightweight, fleet of foot management structure, and create a strategic vision for their company. Salvage Insight will be launching with a one-day bootcamp on Wednesday the 17th of June. For more details and information, please contact SalvageWire through our website, www.salvagewire.com. Back to our conversation with Adam. Yeah, and one of the one of the biggest things around around the repair industry at the moment particularly insurance repair industry is is cycle time or key to key time um, yeah. how how do you think that the vehicle recyclers can can help you to improve that that cycle time so there's a number of issues that need to be overcome before we get to that point so if you think of vehicles 5 years and older mm -hmm. as a starting point just having to actually build a stock of parts, the relevant parts for those vehicles is going to be a challenge in itself. Yeah. They're the vehicles where the vehicle manufacturers would welcome this change because they don't want to actually stockpile parts and warehouses that they have to pay for for the next five or 10 years. Mm -hmm. They don't want that. So it's identifying the correct products that can actually be reclaimed quickly within a, an agreed SLA to deliver a a key to key time in the repairs that meets the requirements. Right, right. That's the challenge. Today, if you went, I'll give you an example. I tried to buy eight parts over the last four weeks, mm -hmm. just as a, an exercise of uh, proofing this. Yeah. And the, the eight parts, I had already found them on eBay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the people that I approached didn't know they had those parts. Yeah. So that shows you the difficulties that we need to overcome. Yeah. Ooh, right now, a couple of years ago, um, the salvage code of practice was updated, uh, and has this update 
made any difference to you and your business? And if so, how or where has this difference been shown? It's a good, another good question. So the salvage code of practice is the minimum requirement to deliver self-regulation. That's that, that. I am sure you will appreciate that my personal views, the update has, in my view, made a substantial difference as follows. Aviva undertake covert and face-to-face -face auditing where they examine cases for compliance. We have noted a significant turnaround in the consistent application of the code by our supplier partners, which include network providers, IMEs, independent motor engineers, yeah, yeah. salvage personnel, all of whom are AQP qualified. The challenges that are still received are generally 75% fewer now than, than previously. So the, we believe that this change has delivered a significant benefit to all parties, reducing the waste within the systems and in in, in the businesses. Mm -hmm. So they're getting it right more often than they're yeah. getting it wrong. Yeah, good. Further observation following review of circa 500 cases is consistently gathering the right and relevant information to assist the AQP to place the correct category on the salvage is one of the most critical factors. Mm -hmm. One thing that is, is a missed opportunity is the fact that not enough engagement took place with the legislators, DFT and the ABI, which have eroded the strength of the argument yeah. to le legitimate, legislate the code. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's looking back on it, I would I would say that if we had legislated it, it would have actually been more readily acceptable yeah. and it would have been more uh, embedded, if you like, in the processes. I still find examples of uh, individuals trying to get round the code as opposed to using it and applying it properly. Mm -hmm. Is there any chance that that we that the code could be legislated in the future? Well, like any, it's, it's an interesting point, and it depends who's in government at the time. Yeah. Uh, the previous government were all for self-regulation, which is is a good thing to a point, but. If you can't get the right outcome with self-regulation, and we're still seeing increasing crime numbers allegedly associated with stolen vehicles for parts and bits and pieces, then you will never stop those practices unless you legislate it. Mm -hmm. And the government that's just been formed have been far too preoccupied with yeah. uh, A, Brexit, B, COVID-19, mm -hmm. which is understandable. Yeah. And at the right time, Aviva will continue to promote legislation if they can get the government to listen right right okay and and is there anything else you'd like to change on the code is there anything that you think needs needs to be changed yeah yeah there's there are a few areas that need to be clarified but mm -hmm. it's like any change program uh, if you bring it all in one chunk you get an element of it being complied with and then you get an element being ignored yeah. I, I would say the, the the category a and b vehicles where we can actually prove that those vehicles have been disposed of correctly and they never reappear and there's no loopholes coming back from taking the vehicle overseas mm -hmm. allegedly and then bringing it in six months later and clearing that little hurdle up would be of benefit to everybody yeah yeah yeah. So you, you mentioned earlier, you said a, a little while ago about, you know, obviously coming out of, of the the, uh, the pandemic, that uh, there would be businesses going out of uh, out of 
out of trading, they'd stop trading, there'd also be acquisitions and mergers. But a lot of the vehicle repair industry is still very family orientated, um, you know, with younger generations working under their parents or even their grandparents. What advice would you give to any young or aspiring leaders looking to advance their career in this industry and eventually attain, attain full ownership and leadership of their family businesses? Yeah, <clears throat> it's no different to when we grew up, Andy, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, leader, leaders are people who find a way through uh, the myriads of re regulation challenges and actually change programs and actually cream always floats to the top. So the advice I would give them is follow your own beliefs and actually stay loyal to your own beliefs mm -hmm. and don't be swayed by the, the latest fashion or challenge that is presented to you if it doesn't uh, add any value to you as an individual or your business, why would you adopt it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and if there's one thing that the UK government could do differently that would have the biggest benefit to uh, to you or Aviva, what would that be? Well, stop kidding yourself that self-regulation works. <laughs> uh, it doesn't work everywhere and recognise the potential risks that are attached to repairing vehicles. This includes salvage, which can be written off and repaired anywhere by unskilled people. Mm -hmm. They need to waken up to the risk of that. That is, that's a serious shortcoming that's causing yeah. problems. Yeah. Now, on on that, on that subject, um, is that a is that a really sort of big big hole in the whole in the whole system whereby, you know, a professional engineer has inspected a vehicle and has said that uh, that is 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 you know either either too difficult or or too costly to repair, yet that vehicle can go into the salvage market and be repaired anywhere at any standard and come back on, uh, come back into use. Is that one of the biggest risks? I would go back to the beginning of your statement there and say not all salvage and not all vehicles are inspected by an engineer. That's one of the issues. Yeah. And therefore, uh, the whole system is actually broken down by lack of a compliance system. So in most countries where uh, there are robust frameworks, Germany is a good example where it's the person is qualified to make the decisions and the the government support that decision making and actually make sure the vehicles cannot come back on the road that shouldn't come back on the road. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are weaknesses in the, the approach that the UK adopt and it's mainly to get round uh, this challenge that they like self-regulation. Mm -hmm. I think we could tighten it up by making it more robust to make an official uh, regulated uh, system where the person has to be qualified to start with who makes the decision and people repairing the car have to be qualified too that right. you can't just buy a, a piece of salvage and repair it on your driveway it should go through some kind of formal checking process to make sure it's safe and compliant right right and one final question we, we're asking this of everybody that comes on the podcast um what was your first car and do you yeah. have any special memories of that car? I, I do, actually. It was an Austin A40. It was finished in green with a black roof, and it cost me 15 quid. The beauty of it was uh, the registration number was 1620 SM, which I later sold for about £1,000. Wow. So the profit generated from it allowed me to advance to a Mini Cooper, <laughs> which. Uh, 
helped to set my uh, aspirations of speed to a different level because they thought he wasn't notoriously fast. <laughs> <laughs> I actually remember because my mum had, had, had an A40 as well and uh, loved that car. I, remember, I always remember the registration as well. 165 LOM was the registration. Wow. I, I wish we'd kept it, but uh, but we haven't. Um, but yeah, I remember that. That was uh, that was one of my first sort of yeah, memories of cars when I was when I was I was very very young. And, uh, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, love it. Absolutely love it. No, Adam, thank you very much for your time. It's been a very interesting and inspiring uh, discussion, and uh, and I'm certain that all our listeners will benefit and be better for this. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate that. That was amazing. Thank you, Adam, for your time and knowledge. Please don't forget to take time to like and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and give us a rating. Deep Pollution podcasts are released every Tuesday. Keep an eye on our social media pages for details of our next podcast.